Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind. It's a podcast that looks at products and texts that center around gaming, the TTRPG world. And yeah, and we are people who read it academically, subjecting these texts under our scrutinizing academic lens. It's been a while, hasn't it, friendos? It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a, a minute. minute. Yeah, so we didn't have an episode last month, um, which means that this episode's a Pride at ep- Well, it's getting recorded during Pride episode. Because <laughs> this yeah, will release by proud. July, probably. Stay humble. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what had happened was a lot of things were happening in our lives. For me in particular, I am now recording from a new apartment. And I do not want to move yet again. Just gotta say. Moving sucks, y'all. Yeah, I, I, I also moved, so I don't. What if this podcast was the reason you had to move? Like your landlord continuing. heard it and like kicked you out. I think <laughs> you have misrepresented Doctor White, and now you may not leave, live in my premises. Oh, I mean, I think if my former landlord realized how often I was smoking marijuana in the apartment, he would probably have wanted me to pay more rent. Oh, can we just again say that Fiona lives in a state where smoking pot is legal? Uh, so before y'all people go after Fiona. I'm not a criminal. Fiona's not a criminal. <laughs> a criminal is judged guilty by a jury of their peers, and there is absolutely no one who is my peer. I was just about to say. <laughs> you know what? That, that scans. That checks out. That yeah. scans, you know. All right. So on that note, on that note... Let's do our usual introductions. Joe, would you like to share our introductory question for today? All right. Uh, So if you currently had a therapist, as many people in this book really should have, um, (laughs) how would they uh, describe you right now? Hi, I'm Fiona Geist. They would describe me as, oh, so you want to be able to swipe right when it says only swipe right when you're in therapy. (laughs) Because... I don't I don't know what a therapist is going to tell me that I don't already know. My last therapist was actually pretty good, though, and I think would describe me as struggling constantly with the world. Well, my name is Jared, and if I had a therapist, they would probably describe me as like a semi-competent George Costanza. And then I would say something like, but I don't yell that much. And then we'd get in an argument and I'd start yelling. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I'm a har and I am in therapy and I make no secret of it. Normalize therapy. And I think my therapist would say to himself, oh my God, again. Uh, but I think uh, he would describe me as someone who could be delightful if he wasn't struggling all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm Joe. I'm the guest for this uh, this section. The interloper. Yeah, the interloper, the invader. Um, I'm also in therapy, and uh, and you know what? My therapist actually very recently described me as someone who would probably have developed into a multiple personality if it would have offered any solace. Uh, but there's nothing that will offer me solace. <laughs> Bleed. Cool. Thanks, wow. 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 <laughs> wow. 
Well, Joe, if it means anything to you, I will offer you solace. I mean, for like I, I two know seconds. you'll try. <laughs> for like two seconds, and then just go downhill from there. <laughs> On that wonderfully somber note, what exactly have we been doing? Well, we've been looking at this book, and perhaps it's because, you know... <laughs> Okay, so the book is Dangerous Games. Legend of America might be an important theme again. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, mm, let's take a deep breath. Okay, Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games say about play, religion, and imagined worlds. It was written by Joseph P. Laycock and published by the University of California Press back in 2015. We've been looking at this book over the last couple of months, uh, basically looking at that, I guess, that event, the phenomenon of D&D being branded as something that was satanic and made children do horrible things, um, which is rather funny considering, number one, that D&D has gotten a resurgence thanks to shows like Stranger Things. It's like D&D, the Kate Bush of hobbies. So... <laughs> Surprisingly conservative sometimes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, actually. Yeah. I mean, so there we go. And now we're looking at this part. We're now looking at chapter two, and we're looking at Dungeons and Dragons as a religious phenomenon. And let's just, uh, you know, before starting the, the conversation, we're just going to read pull quotes, which the author did as pull quotes from other texts. Which is, first, I don't think is an exaggeration to say that at this time, my devotion to the game became almost religious. This is from Mark Barrowcliffe, who wrote The Elfish Game. And no living normal man can be reduced to his conscious, rational activity, for a modern man still dreams, falls in love, listens to music, goes to the theater, views films, reads books, in short, lives not only in a historical and natural world, but also in an existential private world where in an imaginary universe. It is primarily the historian and phenomenologist of religions who is capable of recognizing and deciphering the, in quotes, religious structures and meanings of these private worlds or imaginary universes. Uh, that's from uh, Mircea Eliade in The Quest. Now, let's talk about this. About This is, I think, something that's going to raise people's hackles. Um, D&D is a religious phenomenon. Uh, what do you all think about this? Uh, this rather, you know, controversial slash audacious claim yes <laughs> and that's the that's the episode we're done <laughs> yeah i think i think the book does a really good job of sort of laying out the specific ways in which dnd is acting has acted and continues to act perhaps as a religious phenomenon you know and it's the it's as as simple as like yes it contains religious stuff you know it has like demons and shit in it like that's that's one way that we can sort of read it but it, it gets uh, much more interesting when it starts talking about um you know it starts doing its frame theory thing and talking about um ritual and all of that i'm, I'm trying to find the actual because there are like three points and, and there's a there's a fairly me. substantial part pretty early in the book right like yeah i mean basically just as a lineman um sorry that's on page 53 ish onward but yeah so like there are like uh, three main categories that he outlines and one is having religious stuff in it and i think alignment sort of falls into that and then we've got religious functions here on page 66 so this is kind of the 
the overall arc of chapter two is sort of laying out these three big points. Um, and he takes this phenomenological approach to the religious functionings. I mean, he also takes a really interesting, I think, historical approach as mm-hmm. well um, that I think often a lot of books dealing with the early history of, I mean, the hobby in general, but also D&D. Um, I like, he specifically mentions Peterson discovering articles by Gygax talking about his faith, right? Like the extent to which in quite literal terms, od and is inspired by his like fairly profound and devoted Christianity um, to the extent that Ken St. Andre writes about tunnels and trolls that he's like, ye kind of part of why I did this is that I didn't feel good about this. Like I'm not a religious person and this shit is fully religious. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to go on a bunch of tangents because this is very my wheelhouse. And yeah, please do. do it. I think that like it's, an interesting point because right like D as a whole is like right like functionally a secular hobby that is you're not required to belong to any religion to do it um in fact like you know it's a purely secular hobby on the level of like paying a dm does not qualify as a crime in any jurisdiction even very religious ones um you know, unless you're violating some sort of taboo around like how you're supposed to spend idle time or talk to people of other faiths, but like that's not really about the game, right? Like, ostensibly, it's a purely capitalist uh, thing, and I mean that on the sense of right, like on some level, the official D and D is a thing you can buy, but also there's really nothing that stops you from saying I'm playing D and D and not following the rules. And yet, when you say that the system doesn't matter and that you don't need a book to tell you what to do, people act like you're an impious person um, or an atheist. I mean, I think this is this is where we get into kind of like early theories of play as ritual and violation of ritual as like the er bad player. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's. It does reflect quite a bit in gaming, right? Like we've seen products right now where we see people saying that, oh, when we sell our settings, our settings are system agnostic. Not even system neutral, but rather systems agnostic. I find that rather funny. Um, Agnostic, like we're not sure if system matters or not, but if case it does. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's the first thing. And I do have to agree with you, Joe. Like there uh, there is a notion that when you come to table to play, there are rituals that people have, like people will like send their dice to dice jail for being evil. So there's already like a heaven and hell for dice. Um, there are instruments that have to be used. There are people who don't like playing. It feels wrong to them not to have a particular set of dice. Uh, online play is something that met, I think, with initial resistance because it broke the ritual into different steps. And kind of like the way people feel weird about televised masses, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so I grew up in the Philippines and, um, you know, like I don't consider myself to be a practicing Catholic anymore by any means, but even before, like the idea of, oh, you couldn't go to church, you should go in person. And if you watch, like, you know, 
the mass, the Eucharist being celebrated on TV, that felt weird because that's not real. So I would say that uh, D&D and maybe even other old RPGs um, do have that significance of kind of resting in a particular part of the human psyche. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's akin to the sort of perennial conversation around uh, do games cause violence? And it's like, well, in a strictly speaking causal perspective, and frankly, very little actually causes violence. Lead exposure causes violence. Um, but like, does participating in a ritual that inherently treat some behaviors as violations of the ritual and that that ritual performance ends up becoming a pretty major part of people's lives potentially lead to disgruntlement and could disgruntled individuals act violently yeah totally and if that's the bar we're using then yeah sure games cause violence Um, yeah like that bar is so low as to be meaningless exactly you know what i mean i think it's it's kind of a it's a negotiation of where we're putting the bar in terms of the religious experience of play, right? Is is it a religion on par with Catholicism? No. I, I would argue no. <laughs> I mean, there's just not enough of it. Although, like, the idea of, like, which excommunicated pope are you in terms of game design history would actually be a pretty great quiz. <laughs> yeah. I would be Pope Joan, the secretly female pope. <laughs> no, no. Okay, but I think going on back to the to the, to the subject matter at hand, I think the chapter kind of first looks at structurally, how does the game resemble religion? So what are the elements of religion per se that we're seeing in D&D? And how does the game itself, uh, how does its architecture, for lack of a better word, uh, give rise to the idea that it has religious energy or, for lack of a better word, a religious energy or a religious cast to it? Like, And I think that's really important because later on, this serves as a framework, as a framework for competition. And that's what fed that panic, the idea that you had D&D competing with, you know, proper religion, so to speak. And that's what probably... Um, set off so many people's hackles. So this this chapter, I think, sets the stage for what the moral panic was responding to. Yeah, I think that's that's an important thing that we probably need to set down in more detail, right? Is The question isn't just, is D&D something we can reasonably consider a faith um, in, in some phenomenological way? It's, okay, so if it is... Is that justification on its own terms for the response that I mean that we had in the 1980s? Um, and I think you you make a leap going just from yes or no on if it is a faith to okay, this is why people responded so negatively, right? Because it wasn't just the explicit demonology of D and um, no, there's actually a really interesting bit in, I don't know, chapter three or four, probably. Um, so a little bit later in the book, but he sort of traces this timeline where the initial response um, from, say, uh, the, the the guy who wrote the book about Egbert was this uh, idea William that... Deere. 
thank you. Yeah. Deer was this idea that playing D and D um, promotes a dissociation from reality and then leads into this area where we can no longer distinguish from reality. And then there was the sort of slightly later, um, you know, this book has demons in it kind of knee jerk reaction response. Um, but then by the time you get to, you know, bad, which bad is interesting. And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves uh, because this is in the, chapter four again, but um, bad is interesting because it's a, it's a secularization of both of those arguments, right? So it, it, it synthesizes them or rather puts them next to each other, right? It presents both of those arguments, but from a, a less like uh, quote unquote God fearing kind of way, but it does say like, Hey, this demonic stuff, quote unquote, wh- whether you read it as like actually Satan or not is dangerous socially. Right. So it sort of takes that angle on it which is interesting yeah it's like interesting because it like enters into this realm where like the things that people talk about like D are also considered like a lot harder especially in the context of the 70s and 80s you know like heavy metal like legitimately does involve like teenage delinquents as like a teenage metalhead you know like mm. There's a degree to which, yes, if you're a certain sort of person, like it does represent people who just casually are like not obeying rules, you know, like it's not necessarily actually damaging a system in any meaningful way. And like LSD, you know, with the whole derangement psychosis thing of like, ah, but when they can't tell what reality is and, you know, they can't tell the consequences of their actions, you know, with the like... William Deere inspired like derangement theory, but also how like it takes up a space in the imagination being like one of the things is like kind of interesting where it's like, yeah, like a lot of people can probably cite alignment better than like, you know, religious prohibitions that they're supposed to follow theoretically. I mean, absolutely. God, yeah, yeah. I'd probably argue that most people at all aware of D&D could do that. Yeah. I mean, let's like, face I mean, it. That's... Do you like... see Bible memes? What book of the New Testament are you? No. Do you see what you are for lawful, chaotic, or neutral? Yes. I mean, but also that it, like, bleeds with a bunch of other, like, weird secular cosmo-y stuff. And that I'm sure there is some really cringe, like what it do for the chaotic neutral bard in your life type like listicles. Um, if I wanted to look through the internet and AI generated content and consider bleaching my eyes out. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that you imagine or that you mentioned the, the imagination portion, right? Cause I, one of the things that really stood out to me early in the book, um, I want to read uh, a paragraph length quote. Um, but but the kind of general idea from the early, specifically religious panic, um, that that imagination of of really anything outside of the consensus reality of like the tangible physical world was essentially heretical, and that this was a door into heresy. Um, I find very very interesting. But yeah, so like how quotes uh, a former Baptist pastor 
um, or a former gamer and current Baptist pastor um, named Vince Landini uh, saying, most born-again souls that get caught up in role-playing games probably have never thought this point through, but what you're really telling God when you play any game that glorifies what God opposes or ignores his existence is, thanks for creating the world, dying for my sins, saving my soul, sealing me with your spirit, and preserving your word for my instruction, but I'd rather spend my time pretending to explore an imaginary world whose authors rebel against your existence by not including you i know you understand that i need to have my fun yo i mean i love that quote like, do like people baptize ais i mean i think that's the interesting thing of like how this kind of there's nothing inevitable about like evangelical christians condemning you know D other than you know the material conditions that it was very popular in the Midwest. Like, I mean, I think that's an uncontroversial point, right? Like essentially like evangelicals were also exposed to D and D it becomes popular throughout the Midwest. That's uncontroversial. And like, you know, there is the thing of like, right. It involves imagination. And as it becomes a bigger and bigger market, it does lean into advertising to, you know, like a broader world in certain ways in ways that like are very conducive to a moral panic already going on about like, you know, the imagination because like the Satanists put special messages in some rock songs. And if you play them backwards, you know, you'll hear orders to like do things against God. I used to have a bunch of like, old publications about like back masking. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's footloose. Yo, footloose is actually a good movie. Footloose is a great movie. And also probably the most relatable, uh, presentation of the satanic panic for anyone who wants to really feel what it was. I mean, you could also the MTV remake of it involves the bus that explodes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, one thing okay. I really like about that quote specifically is um, Laycock sort of uses it to spin spin out this idea, like this completely inverted idea, right, of actually how religion functions, where he starts talking about, I guess it's somewhere around page 68, he starts talking about nostalgia and um, like escapism functionally and how those things are – can they, they they can behave in a religious function and specifically in D he makes the argument that they are behaving in it with a religious function um and so you get this this really incredible block quote on page 69 by someone named john who was interviewed for an article about D and the, the, i'll just read you like the first the, the beginning and the end of the block quote it says ever since i was 10 i've wanted to drop out of this world and then the last sentence is, the more I play D&D, the more I want to get away from this world. So it's like really hammering home this idea that the world is a bad place and D&D is a way to escape from it. And he immediately gets into this idea of sort of fantasy as a, as a, 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 a world that we can construct outside of our own in order to assess our own world and this gets into a lot of my own like personal weird bugbears that i don't need to get into but um i think that's just a really interesting framework to put on D as you know in, in this reading of it as a religion 
or as a religious uh, text, right? This idea that we can use fantasy to assess reality um, from outside, which is not a perspective that we actually have otherwise. And that that's exactly what religion does to some degree. Yeah, so it's those three functions that really like get us into the whole idea of what D&D does. Like first, it has those elements that we're familiar with. Second, it has those functions that we're familiar with. And third, that D&D, like a religion, uh, lets you know your place in the universe, which is really, really terrifying when you get down to it. You know, the yeah, idea I mean, that... I, the, the implications of that are kind of, like, like, terrifying and a little bit withering. Like, D&D is the cause of epiphany. Like, oh, fudge. Like, really? I mean, he, he like, pretty much outright states that about... Uh, and this is Laycock directly, right? That, that he's saying that uh, because fantasy worlds allow gamers to imagine things that were once unimaginable, they also present choices that were once inconceivable. Right? That, like in a very tangible way, like the kind of relationship that for instance, like Gnostics have with God is the kind of relationship that D and D players have with, with faith generally. Fiona, you're going to say something. Oh, oh yeah. So like, I think that segues into a point that I think is made implicitly in the text and i'd like to make explicitly which is i really think what's interesting is that lake hack brings up the disenchantment thesis that is you know to not just block quote twice from the text a lot of people are disenchanted with modernity because you know like all of the world was conquered but like there's no excitement anymore is one a very privileged position to take and two very common across large groups of people. But like, you know, um, Laycock draws to, uh, I think like, you know, where Greenwood uh, would remarks on his creation, the setting wasn't created to fulfill a market niche, but to fill a human need for legend, mythology, and discovery. If you place any weight in the writing of Joseph Campbell, and it's hard to imagine a D&D player who wouldn't be affected by the power of myth, the hero with a thousand faces, or myths to live by, then it's easy to understand why someone else's sincere attempts to create a personally fulfilling world of powerful myth would resonate with so many people. And I think that and the quote on page 69, uh, where there's kind of the explicit, um, you know, we'll just call it Orientalism is the wrong term because that technically has, you know, with Saeed's thesis, a very narrow focus, but where he points out you can't explore and then lists all of the colonial exploring, you know, regions for a reason of, right, like that both is the content of the pulp novels around when he grew up and also a huge mythology for, you know, the equivalent of Boy Scouts for the era. And also maybe says something about around when the game was made. And I think I just dropped the cancelable take in there of <laughs> Gary Gygax's Jordan Peterson. Um, but I feel like if you hadn't just made it explicit, nobody would have caught it. But um, I mean, hey, it's your show. Based on what the, we're... This chapter is basically a large setup for more things to come, right? Um, but yeah, like I guess the the final th- just like encapsulate everything. So basically, the thesis is that D and D is not per se a religion. Um, 
Laycock takes pains to actually say it's not a religion per se, but it does contain religious elements. So there's a religious a religious religiosity to it, for for lack of a better term. Then the whole idea, like it all encapsulates so this whole notion of um, these games uh, at, towards the end of chapter two basically create forms of radical agency for those who engage in it because you're again like that earlier more dangerous implication that you're able to conceive of choices and worlds which are not the status quo and by doing so you are able to then explore options that you're unable to explore in the real world and this brings us to brainwashing (laughs) and the whole idea of oh look because your mind's been opened your it must mean that all the good stuff inside has gone through the crack that came from an open mind it's now getting replaced with bad stuff which is the next which is the next like i think the next pathway into when the satanic panic began getting uh you know uh developed and basically what was catalyzing this moment so do we want to talk about that do we want to talk about brainwashing and mind control i mean literally always but yeah <laughs> like have you googled mk ultra have you read the declassified mk ultra documents look there's just a part where if we talk about this in certain ways this will become a conspiracy theory podcast which i don't want to be involved in incidentally RPGs also exist in a nexus where they hit conspiracy theories a lot. I have written QAnon in the margins of this book twice now. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things of... Ideologically, I do think there's some of the, especially among, like, early D&D adopters, the Campbellian myth thing, but, like... You know, that really is free thinking compared to the world of the moral majority. So it becomes like expressively satanic and feared. But like also this fear of brainwashing that's, you know, part of the mid-century American paranoia. Because the Cold War was a really great idea. Well, okay, so we're now entering this part where, so while all of Dick, well, D&D was, you know, fomenting uh, other things were happening in the usa at the same time so first you like fiona mentioned you had the cold war you had people talking about like psyops against each other so it was a time pretty rife with the whole notion of um you know it's rife with the idea that people are trying to control you and trying to produce like these different kind of personalities through whatever kind of programming um the whole notion of programming becomes something you had cultists being quite active um and that and you had like people doing things in the name of cults they bring in the example of 1974 with 19 year old patricia patty hurst which i did not know about that Oh, wait, you, you didn't, didn't know, know the Patty Hearst story? I didn't know right. about that. Look, I'm like, you You're know. You're a was, psychologist, the Stockholm I know, but I didn't know that. I didn't know. I knew, I knew like about Patty Hearst. No, I knew about Patty Hearst as a subject. I didn't know about Patty Hearst as being something that would feed into the milieu of the satanic panic. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's like, I mean, like, 
She's it's from like, a rich family and she joined bank robbers who are Marxists after she got kidnapped by them. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a pretty big leap, right? For one to go from like regular psychology and think, okay, that's how programming and syndromes begin. It's another thing to think, oh, that's led to D&D. So like, it is pretty interesting to consider that as part of the milieu. I just, it just never occurred I mean, to me to look at this historically. I mean, so... Oh, that was all part of that. <laughs> like, no <laughs> I, wonder. I mean, it's right? one of the things I think about, like, you know, with like early book reading and the fear it would cause people to become onanists because they would get used to deftly using their hands. Yeah. So this segues into this part about brainwashing. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, like, so. Fiona earlier was kind of talking about talking to us about like you know how how new ideas can do things like effeminate your mind. And if anything, like there was a collective anxiety about how minds were like malleable because of things like games. And this is the part where when Fiona mentioned effeminate your mind, that was kind of like, uh, yeah, that's, that was really funny because there is a part here in the book that talks about the gay cleric and talking about the, just how like, how this works out okay so for example um basically in 1979 the los angeles times published an article simply called uh dungeons and dragons so while the article was not intended as an attack on DD, as these things aren't you know you can't really talk to their intentions um it described children losing interest in ordinary activities suffering from depression after their characters die and hoping for spells that would bring back the dead it also had unusual sexual references noting that monsters may spare characters with high charisma so that they can impose their romantic or sexual wills on them and that one's player character is a slightly gay cleric <laughs> and i'm just kind of like how are you slightly gay how does one quantify that I think, really I think that's just bisexual <laughs> kind of brings in the 1970s yeah. in for you but you know like you have all of these you have all of these like cultural events cultural discourses happening and i don't like the word discourse as a rule i think the word discourse is something that's fundamentally misunderstood to mean conversation <laughs> when discourse i would say more importantly is the manner by which certain topics are handled when two ideas clash regarding said topic which is a very different thing from oh they had a conversation no discourse is not a conversation it's not even a dialogue it's a competition between competing ideas Right, it's a clash of of wills, and would so D is in a discourse with Christianity. Yes, I would go that far because, like, because the dis, and I would say that I would go so far as to say, oh, here we go again, that D and D was getting seen as and possibly subverted, or would be usefully subverted as an apparatus against other religious thinking. So, like, that's my idea. Even as I, mean, I think that's a that's a compelling thesis for at least the initial religious pushback against it. Yeah, yeah, but I think at the same time, D and D is also it's just a tool. I mean, you did see people of faith 
playing D&D and enjoying the fact that their faith structures could be used as moral compasses for their characters. So I think it's just an instrument as opposed to an actual active, subversive, uh, radioactive item. Well, I mean, it's both and, you know, which is, I think, what's, like, interesting is, like, like all religious phenomenon, right, like, as pretty much an atheist, um, I think, as the most obvious thing, um, you know, like, there's obvious differences between, like, a televangelist who is clearly doing this for money and someone who very sincerely believes the things they're saying, right? In the same way that, like, there are probably people who are too mentally ill to play D&D and or, like, it also makes them more susceptible to, like, magical or otherworldly thinking that's not rooted in reality, but also they might have had that problem before the game came along, it's hard to imagine it did that in the same way. It's hard to imagine that like a bunch of rules would create consistency given like, you know, most religions have lists of rules you're supposed to follow. And, you know, the second act of any religion is arguing about how much you actually have to follow the letter of the law. That was a theology joke. (laughs) Well, you know, well, Fiona, uh, Yeah, the world. Yeah, you know, like speaking of atheism. Well, speaking of the law, uh, this is where I think um, discourse comes into mind, Fiona, because the thing that really crystallized this was the case of, um, you know, because again, looking at cultishness and cult leaders and how the DM was seen as a you know proxy cult leader, this had entered the public discourse was the notion of. What's this kid's name again? Um, uh, the the one who got hurt? The one who got caught in so-called tunnels? Oh, uh, da- uh, Dallas Egbert the fifth. Yeah. Dallas Egbert the fifth. Yeah, so Dallas Egbert, basically 1979, disappears, a supposed child prodigy, 16 years old, and then his his family, wanting to find him, hires this investigator, William Deere. And a former Florida Highway Patrolman, Deere basically presented himself, according to the book, as a larger-than-life figure and sometimes demonstrated narcissistic characteristics. Yet it's from this person that we get quite a lot of the energy against D&D, right? So he started making, he started sensationalizing this disappearance and basically casts himself as a hero who's out to save this like child genius kid from the destructive fantasies of Dungeons and Dragons. And even though it wasn't proven for Dallas Egbert to have ever actually played Dungeons and Dragons and and did demonstrate a number of like mental and social and emotional issues. Dallas Egbert had played Dungeons and Dragons. I think he he at least claimed to. He He had an interest he had an interest, but he hadn't actually like played it in like uni. Apparently, like there was no con- there was no confirmation. Oh, I see. I think he played it as part of his investigation. Well, but uh, Dallas Egbert himself did he play D anD D? Yeah, Jared, you're thinking deer. Oh, are we talking about Egbert? I'm yeah. sorry, we're talking yeah, about that's Egbert. My yeah, that's yeah. my bad. Yeah, because oh. uh, I I gotten um, Christmas set scanned um, the bit where deer plays D anD D. 
Mm-hmm. It's spectacular. Room. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. So this gets all super duper sensationalized, right? His parents make it even more sensationalized, I think, because they offer something like five thousand dollars or so to, to please find my kid, um, which is like twenty thousand dollars in today's terms. And um, yeah, all of these like coalesce with with deer, um, basically saying that you know it was this thing it was this thing that pushed this poor child genius into into this into this situation and it became sensational it became um there were things like game cult is still missing headlines we had headlines like fancy fancy turned real life may have killed student and yeah, like in a way, like this lack, I hate to say this because this brings out the Gamergate crowd. It was a lapse of journalistic ethics, <laughs> to quote, <laughs> to quote Laycock directly. But basically, yes, you had this, you had this narcissist person named Deer, and you had a very irresponsible press. And then you have this further backdrop of everyone's freaking out because it's the cold war people are afraid of ideas being used to program people you have an upswing in cultish like information coming out here yeah deprogramming uh, program is coming out and that's pretty much the wave which upon which the satanic panic is going to crest because you also have a, you need a target now and dnd becomes this this target it's like and it's 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 a crazy read. I didn't realize it was so crazy to be alive in the seventies. I mean, and eighties. Yeah. I mean, it's and always 80s. been crazy to be alive. You know, every generation <laughs> thinks they've discovered this thing for the first time, and you know, it's kind of interesting how you can kind of draw lines between the eras and how things work, and that like at this point. Arguably, Dungeons and Dragons needs a Satan. Like, not Satanism, you know, although I now practicing Satanists are game designers, um, but like rather, you know, like the concept of D&D needs like the concept of the authorities that don't like it. The way that there's like the Revolution X video game where you shot the PMRC with a CD gun as Aerosmith that was in like every theater when oh I was growing Oh my god, up. I love that game. Yeah, like shoot Tipper Gore with like CD cannon. <laughs> <laughs> this is if, actually if the origin story game, for Dubstep. <laughs> if you've never played that game, it is a spectacular artifact and uh you should check it out sometime if you ever have a chance it is a terrible rails shooter that just exists to punish you for playing the game excellent which actually i think is the same thing (laughs) and (laughs) yeah i think maybe a question we might want to ask ourselves at this point is like because i think we've we've discussed it before like these things happen in cycles right and i think looking exactly at what the panic looked like is its own episode but looking at the conditions that led to the panic do you think that we're due another rpg wave anti-rpg wave soon no no i don't think it's gonna happen i don't think rpgs have the cultural cachet and will never again have the cultural cachet and also like other media forms 
also they're also they're like they also kind of the opposite of that like they almost have too much cultural cachet also like they're D D is just such a household you know what i mean yeah and like Watsi is such a huge yeah. corporation they have too much for anyone to believe something that crazy about them and they don't have enough to be a target despite them like maybe maybe it's cynical but the art is too good now you know what i mean mean? like the books are too pretty (laughs) i don't think i don't think video games would be a target if the uh aesthetic uh i suppose that's true was a sufficient defense right i think the thing that makes video games the actual target and will probably continue to be the actual target other than probably the metaverse aka mmos for regular people i think that might actually be the next one and speaking of that yeah i I think also like the existence of video games has forever taken the heat off of rpgs yes you know because there's there's this issue of like parents looking at their child with a DD book are like well well at least they're reading i mean i can (laughs) you know yeah i can tell you literally (laughs) as someone who does this as a business uh parents are in love with it because it gets them away from screens yeah well, I guess. I yeah. Sorry, you first, the, Fiona. The other like cycles thing is like really, if anything, like the equivalent of the satanic panic from now on will be inside the house, right? Like it's a big enough institution. The same way that satanic panics happen inside churches, mm-hmm. you know? Because like, yeah, you could say that the contemporary, depending on which side you want to fall on, you know, like either the wokeification of D&D or its alt-right like elements are ostensibly two separate satanic panics that occur over like what is and is not like the religious function of D&D around moral instruction, which I think is me saying horseshoe theory is real with the obvious caveat of there are more or less desirable ideals to be an authoritarian about. It's just that actually authoritarianism is bad. Yeah. I expect if we're going to see, and this is building off what you're saying, I think if I think we're going to see anything that approximates a satanic panic in, in the modern day of RPGs, it's going to be more like sectarian. You know, it's going to actually be more like a religion in that way. Um, but I mean, just one, one is, that's more codified. This is a thing that we are actually currently seeing the beginning. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm being coy happening. about it, but yeah, like, 100%. Yeah. You know, the starting gun was probably about 10 years ago. I mean, like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we've had story games in OSR for a while. Yeah. That yeah. I read, like, literally has one person write for it where their article involves like the idea of overcorrecting for the satanic panic where I'm agreeing with it most of the way through. And then they get to the part where they're like, and now the current edition wants to have bisexual elves with danger hair. And it's like, Oh yeah, nope. The reason that you like, hate the idea of the satanic panic is that it said your nerd hobbies are dangerous and not in a cool way. Uh I mean, so you know what? I mean, this is, SI reread this in preparation for it, and it's really wild. Like, it's just so wild, like how all of this just came to a came to a head with this with this backdrop. Like it's really just it's something. I mean, I'm gonna else. I'm gonna take the counterpoint. I don't think it's wild at all unless you're not paying attention to the world around you. 
Uh, I mean, look, I think the world now is basically like just trying. It's like, honestly, I think living now is the equivalent of riding on a, on a raging bull. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's but like, I mean, that, that again, that was the 1980s in the US. And I think people don't understand that. Or well, like yeah. either they've forgotten it or they never had the understanding to begin with because, well, they never experienced it. I mean, but like. I'm, you know, you're I'm, under the yeah. like the constant perception that the world is about to end because an alien force of outsiders is attempting to destroy you, and that your way of life is the only thing that can ultimately be salvation for the world at large. Um, being alive in the 1980s is functionally akin to like basically being far right today. I mean, look, in the nineteen, I was alive in the nineteen eighties, and I'm gonna just say I don't miss those. T- I don't miss those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. I'm not saying it was good, <laughs> but uh, I think I think you you can totally see how you get to the satanic panic. I mean, it's just unfortunately uh, the things that we have today that people are having their own versions of the satanic panic around are not as innocuous as role-playing games and affect people's lives in very material ways. On that note... <laughs> uh, do we have any... Uh, do we have any, do we mail? have any mailbag questions? We don't have uh, mailbag today. Because oh, I don't, th- I don't think we asked for mailbag questions. We didn't ask this, for mail. Oh, no. I mean, let's be honest. The last few weeks, at least for me, the last week has been a lot of uh, emotional labor and not wanting Fair. to hurl things at my TV. <laughs> but yes, if you're listening, you can tweet at us anytime. We're at kind trying, and you can send us your questions, and we probably won't answer them. But we'll think about them. But we might. We might. But we will see them. We, we will see, see them. them. We will. I'll we try will. to answer them. I might. <laughs> I might. I might like reply to the tweet from my personal account. Yeah. There I mean, you go. Perfect. Plug, Joe's Joe's a sweetheart at iHeartFargo. I am at iHeartFargo. Throw all your harassment yeah, at me. Yeah, do you have anything you want to plug, Joe? Absolutely not. Perfect. <laughs> I, I love that about you. I yeah, do. Not even a little bit. Yes. <laughs> uh, Joe thought that joining this podcast would get him canceled faster. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, my hope was that it was the, like, anti-plug. That my being on here meant I could never plug a thing again. And you said, <laughs> instead, Joe, you have found warmth and acceptance. Mahar, I hate you so much for that. <laughs> I hate you for warmth and acceptance. Dangerous <laughs> Games, episode two. Okay. All right. All right, friendos. And on that note, we're going to see you hopefully in a month when we talk about the panic proper. 